if you guys would forgive me one second, I'm going to show you how the sausage is made. Um, Derek, am I doing a clicker or am I giving you guys uh, a signal to change my slides? We should have conferred beforehand. All right. There we go. Sausage made, my friends. So good morning to all of you on both Father's Day and Juneteenth, only the second year that this is a federally recognized holiday. Um, I feel like I'm moving up in the world because they're now allowing me to preach on major holidays. So <laughs> I have passed my, my tests, apparently, and have been found uh, successful. So um, here in church time, we're in ordinary time. We're just past Pentecost. And preaching team this summer, in ordinary time, we're going to sort of coordinate our thinking and our messages around uh, an idea called Emerge. And so pursuant to that, what I want to discuss this morning um, is a concept that I like to think of as black belt level Christianity, which is reconciliation. So any of you who have come up maybe when you were a child or, or in high school or college went through like a martial arts training program, you know that anybody, no matter who you are, no matter what your skills in any other area of life, when you enter for the first time a training program, you are issued a white belt because you are a beginner. And as you master sets of skills, sets of skills that are associated with the different colored belt levels, you graduate up and up, and that colored belt will indicate both to the people who are, who are studying with you and potentially to any knowledgeable outsiders what level of mastery you have achieved, and therefore also in your classroom, in your dojo, what level of maybe privilege you have, but also the level of responsibility that you have to your classmates and then to other people that you encounter outside of that. And it's this coded uniform that you wear to indicate both your successes and your responsibilities. So when you become a Christian, it's kind of like that. Hopefully, whether you were a child or an adult or somewhere in between when you decided to follow Jesus, the people who were mentoring you hopefully were wise enough to bring you in as sort of a white belt level Christian, and probably they were introducing you to these entry level um, skills and ideas of being a believer, like regular attendance in a body of people who were giving their attention to the Bible and thinking about how to follow Jesus together, whether that was a church or Bible study, uh, starting to learn how to integrate prayer into the way that you do your life and how you make your decisions. And maybe, you know, you started to edit what you consumed through media. These are sort of the beginning steps as you're a young believer, no matter what age you have when you decide to follow Jesus. And then as you grow in faith and wisdom and discipleship, ho hopefully under more mature believers, you become stronger in these different areas. And a good, good way to think about that, we go to the fruit of the Spirit, how Paul describes them, and we grow in strength in those different practices. And uh, so what I think of, when I think of reconciliation, what I'm going to argue to you today is that this is, in fact, uh, very difficult and is therefore an advanced skill level. And the way that we approach it at any particular part of our life is going to be a mirror it is, in fact, going to reveal to us what our deeply held beliefs about the center of our, what the center of our faith is. Because the foundational act of what we believe, of our faith in following Jesus, is that God reconciled us to him while we are still enemies. That's the foundation of what we believe. When we are in conflict with others, when reconciliation needs to happen, whether or not we choose to participate in that and how we do it 
is going to reveal not what we think our beliefs are, but what the deep gut-level reaction to our own salvation is. That's going to be my argument to you today. So um, reconciliation, unlike some other uh, skills that we develop as a believer, is something we do not do by ourselves. It is always, always, always a community activity. Some things we can do alone, reconciliation always happens into a community, and we need a supportive and wise community to sort of midwife this into existence in us. But also, if you're by yourself, there's really no one with whom you have to reconcile. And so it's both a necessity of community life and can only happen, we can only learn it with people around us. So both of these things make it true. We neither have to nor can do it by ourselves. And I'm also going to argue this is something that we really desperately need to learn. We need to be advancing up our belt levels because our families need us to learn how to do reconciliation. Our churches need us to know how to do it. And our country is going to need us to know how to do it. And because today is such an important day in our national calendar, uh, because it's Juneteenth, I'm actually going to use the example of the brief post-American Civil War period that's called Reconstruction to look through how this could work well and how ultimately it didn't work well. So I'm going to use that historic moment to, to examine this. But first, um, but also I, I have to say that because our beloved Shannon Sanker did remind us that church over the past couple of years has sometimes felt like a funeral, um, I'm also going to do this using our old friends, the Muppets. <laughs> so don't be afraid that this is going to be all, all sour and no, and no sweet. So first, let's turn ourselves to scripture to orient ourselves towards biblical reconciliation as described by Paul. And so we're going to go to 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 6 to, oh, that looks great, guys. I messed up my slides, and they did this literally on the fly this morning. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. I want to put this passage in conversation with the passage on which Meg preached last week. I think it's good, especially since we're kind of switching uh, preachers from week to week, that we maintain a sense of continuity. And Meg last week read from Romans 5, and I am going to read just 9 through 11 here for you and put these in conversation with each other. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, 
shall we be saved through his life. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So I tried to build a model, because Paul repeats this word over and over again, but if we don't come to that with a, a meaning or an idea of what that looks like, this can really start to sound like gibberish, right? He said it over and over again, but, but what are we actually talking about here? So I cobbled together um, a model, both from the passages that I was reading in the Gospels and through Paul's letters about reconciliation, and also through the historical example that I'm going to talk through um, farther to the end of the sermon, uh, and so to explore this, I'm going to propose that all of our relationships, whether it's a one-on-one -on -one or sort of multiple parties in a relationship, there are kind of four basic states that that relationship could be in in any one time. And this is not to suggest that this is like a cycle or like a progression of skills, like I've, I've used the metaphor of the, the belt levels, but simply that if your relationships are healthy enough to have a long life, they are probably going to go through, well, they, they are. Let me take the modifier. They're going to go through these states at some point. So, um, Derek, can you give me slide number four? Thank you. So the first state that I kind of imagine to exist is wholeness or, or shalom. So we could say peace. And I'm not intending to say that there's no conflict present here, but generally speaking, this is a state of health where the members, however many they are, are in harmony with each other. They're having their needs and concerns addressed, and there are no active, open conflicts. They're opening, they're all, all operating with openness and even grace in this relationship. And to be in a state of shalom and wholeness, you actually need all parties, you need both Kermit and Miss Piggy to agree that you're in a state of wholeness, okay? Uh, state number two, Derek. Now we have a state of conflict. Now, in this state, you can either have all parties agreeing that there's conflict, but you don't have to. Like we have here, Piggy seems very happy, but something's gone wrong for Kermit. He is unhappy. This is a state of conflict. Now, um, some action at this point needs to be taken. Unlike the state of wholeness, there isn't sort of an active open conflict. We, someone needs to be restored to wholeness. Reconciliation is going to need to happen. There's either harm or hurt that's occurred. Okay. Number three. Now with things have triangulated, unfortunately, a little bit between uh, Miss Piggy and Kermit. Um, now Kermit looks like he's okay. Maybe he's in the forgiveness stage, but Miss Piggy is attacking America's sweetheart, Florence Henderson. Something has gone wrong. Now forgiveness and reconciliation are related, but they are not the same thing. Now, reconciliation is going to need forgiveness to happen but forgiveness can also exist in its own independent state, and I'm going to argue that really it only requires one of the parties to embrace forgiveness for forgiveness to happen. And that's going to be in, in contrast to what reconciliation is. Now, I think that this is a really easy temptation for Christians, or, or anybody, but um, we're specifically talking about following Jesus here, that feeling that you need that other person that caused you harm to be repentant before you can forgive them. Uh, but sometimes we don't get that, and I think this is actually a mistake that Christians make. Forgiveness requires you 
to choose it. Sometimes you actually cannot get to a place with reconciliation with another person because that person is not safe for you to be around for some reason. You can't reestablish um, contact to walk through this. You have to do it by yourself. Sometimes the other person won't acknowledge that hurt or harm has happened. You can't agree that there's a problem to be solved, and so you're going to have to walk this path by yourself. Sometimes a person is absent, or they might, they might be deceased. But that's not the end of your story. You are still walking out your faith. You're going to need to pursue this by yourself, which is a hard path to walk. But I want to remind you of what Paul said. Paul says in Romans 5, while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So this is central to our following of Jesus. And when we come to a place, either where reconciliation can't happen, or we find ourselves to be walking this path alone, remember that God walks the path of forgiveness for us alone first. And if we believe that deeply in ourselves, we're going to pursue this. And if you find yourself stuck here, it might be a moment to say, oh my gosh, I can give this my intellectual assent. I always thought this is what I believed, but here I am up against a wall and I can't move forward. Is this what I, is this what I believe? Am I voting with my feet that this is what I believe? If we call ourselves followers of Jesus without forgiving others, to use Paul's words again, I think we're receiving Paul's, or God's grace in vain. But let's move on to the fourth state, to reconciliation. Kermit and Piggy have made up, maybe after a trip to Europe from the look of their clothing. I hope that Florence is okay. I argued earlier in my sermon that reconciliation is the central foundational event, central foundational act in the Christian story. It, this is threaded all throughout scripture, from Genesis all through to Revelation. God pursuing reconciliation with us and then calling us to imitate him in the way we respond to other people. The entire point of the death and resurrection of Jesus, in fact, is to reconcile us back to God. And what we do in response to that need for reconciliation in our relationships and what J.R. Tolkien calls the dark watches of the night when no one else is there. That's what we really believe. So before I go on, I need to mention something, which is uh, in Matthew 5, uh, verse 24, it says that if you come to the altar and you know that one of your neighbors has something against you, you need to leave your gift at the altar and return to that person and make things right before you can come and make your sacrifice. So one of the um, blessings and possibly the most terrifying of all the blessings that you receive when you preach is that you are required to think through your own life before you get up in front of other people. You're given the time and the space to meditate both on scripture and then to do an inventory of yourself. And as I was doing this in the weeks coming up um, to preaching this, I knew for a fact that there was a relationship that um, had a conflict in it. And I was, I, was, I was not pursuing reconciliation with that person. There's not somebody in this room in case you're like, oh, a one-sided conflict that no one knows about. Uh-oh. Uh, there's nobody here. Um, and I, was, I, I knew, I was deeply convicted that I was not allowed to preach this sermon if I did not make steps um, forward in this matter. So I want to say that I've made some very tentative steps 
forward on this, and I'm not entirely sure how to proceed, and in fact, I think I'm going to have to talk to some um, mature believers to guide me in this. Um, but it pushed me forward in doing literally anything, literally something, so that with a clear conscience I could come and talk to you today. So if you have any wisdom on that, I would also encourage you to, um, to speak to me, because I could use the help. So let's explore now this idea of reconciliation for, uh, further, and we're going to de um, delve a little bit more deeply into Paul. So Derek, could you give me the next slide, please? So what does reconciliation take? For this to really happen, for reconciliation to happen and restoration afterwards, because that's, that's a deep part of it, you're going to have to have two parties who come together and agree to do this. Otherwise, it's going to be the path of forgiveness. But reconciliation is not going to be on the table, at least not yet. So if you have to have two willing parties, and you have to have, between those parties, an honest memory of what has happened. Okay? Uh, we're going to talk about this more deeply when we talk about what Juneteenth is, but uh, let me give you an example from a conference that I just attended in March. I attended the uh, Conference on Faith and History that was hosted at Baylor this year in Texas, and this is a group of Christian academics, most of whom who teach at the college level, but not all of them, and there was a high school teacher, teacher who teaches at a Christian high school um, in Milwaukee, and uh, Milwaukee, of course, has recently lived through the twin traumas of the murder of George Floyd and then prolonged months of civil unrest afterwards. And this teacher had young high school students who were genuinely traumatized by what was going on, and she as a historian and as a Christian steeped in the tradition of reconciliation was trying to bring them to an understanding of what had happened historically and in the closer moment so that they could work through um, a deep, rich understanding of what was going on and not just react in fear. And what she found was that her students, um, a large majority of them, had a, a false set of facts about what was going on, and it had ossified into a false memory of what had happened. And it, it stuck this process really hard. They, they got stuck. And the false memory that her students were repeating is that during the protests and the riots, protesters had killed somewhere around 200 people, including police officers. This is not factual. But without these parties coming to an honest, shared memory, this reconciliation process in which she wanted her students, her mostly white students, to enter stalled. And this was a, a grief for her as an educator and as a believer. So two parties have to engage in really difficult work at this stage of listening to each other's stories, not just hearing them, but listening them, and then excavating the truth and coming to a shared understanding of the wrong that's occurred, the hurt or the harm. And this could be the last stage. And forgiveness might have to um, move forward from here. But if it isn't, what you're going to need is number four, oh, excuse me, number three um, is going to be part of this, that all the parties involved are going to have to give up an exclusive right to power. You're going to have to go in pursuing the reconciliation restoration with someone else, knowing that you're not going to get to determine all of the circumstances of that. That's not to say that you debase yourself or you give up on truth claims. What this means is that you pursue wholeness for everyone, not an advantage for yourself. And this is going to take resilience. 
And when Meg preached on this last week, the word that Paul used was perseverance, that hardship leads to perseverance. This process is going to be a hardship, most likely. And what we need is, um, Eugene wonderfully borrowed this phrase from Friedrich Nietzsche, this is going to take a long obedience in the same direction to accomplish this. This is going to be work happening before this particular conflict, and it's going to be work moving forward through and after this. And this is not something we usually have at a white belt level of, of Christianity. When we're new believers, this is an, an advanced skill that we need to be partnered through with mature believers. And we need to fix our eyes on that. I think the very first sermon I ever preached, I talked about when you play tennis, the tennis ball is going to go where your toes are pointed. And so we have to keep thinking about pointing ourselves at the direction. We may not be there yet. The ball hasn't, we may not have received the ball. We may not have hit it yet, or we've hit it and we don't know where it's going to land yet, but we've got to keep turning our bodies. We have to keep pointing our toes. So when you're a white belt believer, knowing that reconciliation is something, somewhere where you need to land, pointing our toes there early on. This is a muscle that we're going to build over time as we go through these many states of, of wholeness and brokenness. Now, when we're young believers, our response to someone telling us we need to pursue reconciliation might look like this. We might deflect, right? Nope. I don't want it. We might have an outburst of anger or we might simply um, break or accuse the other party, the party that's brought the, the claim of hurt or harm. Or we might break off the relationship and just utterly abandon it, just ghost it. There's a problem, I've got to get out of here. Or my personal favorite and my personal area of specialty is just pretending like everything's fine and then nursing a grudge like a witch with my creepy animal familiar. But I need you to remember that discomfort isn't a sin and discomfort isn't even evidence of a sin. It's what we do when we're uncomfortable that can go there. So just because you feel tension doesn't mean that that's evidence that you need to, that you're wrong or in the wrong, but it, it means we need to be aware that moving forward might be difficult. So um, this is the stage, if, if we have been successful, if we've walked forward and all parties have agreed to this, that we come to a stage where we're going to restore what's gone wrong. Now, this isn't to say that the, the relationship goes back to how it was before. I actually think that's a false hope. I think there's a better hope, which is that it becomes something new through this process, and in fact, it becomes something better. Uh, in fact, I, my best relationships in my life are ones where we have had a conflict, we've gone through this process of excavation and listening, and then agreement and restoration. Those are my best relationships. And when I'm close with someone, but I know there hasn't been this process yet, I'm kind of nervous because I don't know what will, what will happen when this eventually comes. It's a mystery. Until you go through it, it's a mystery. Um, but to illustrate this, and I am watching my time, I promise. I'm going to not get too, too long-winded as a historian. Um, let's look at Juneteenth, which I early on can give us a really good example of how this could work well, but ultimately failed. So um, Derek, could you go to my next slide? This is an image by Thomas Nast, who's a very famous American cartoonist. And this is actually, I've edited this down so that you can focus, there aren't too many things in the image, of his illustration of emancipation um, from June, or excuse me, January, uh, I believe it's 63. So, <clears throat> 
Juneteenth actually celebrates something that happened two years later in 1865. Abraham Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 63. It was at the height of the war. The, the tide hadn't yet turned yet in the Union's favor. And this was both an ideological and a strategic decision by Abraham Lincoln to declare that um, the slaves were free, even though it couldn't be accomplished yet. The Union was not winning. And simultaneously, not everyone knew about it until the date, uh, June 19th, <clears throat> 1865, because you had to deliver news in person unless you could get a newspaper to print it, and the Confederate newspapers were not going to do that. So um, on this date is the day that news finally reached Galveston, Texas, delivered in person by the Union Army, and everyone, at least theoretically, had heard the news, that this was the truth and the law of the land. And this ushered in, the end of the American Civil War, ushered in a really astonishing but brief period in which the United States government was deeply invested in reconciling with the harmed party, the correct harmed party, which was the African-American population of the United States. And for 12 years, the government actively fought um, they overturned voting restrictions. They had troops stationed in southern cities to protect people and to establish the law of the land throughout the entire land. And as a result of that, uh, the American people elected over 1,500, 1,500 black men to public office. From the, postal, the post office all the way up to the Senate, and in fact, uh, a story I heard just a couple weeks ago that um, in all of the craziness of the insurrection on January 6th that just didn't become a major story was that a portrait of one of these very first black senators was vandalized during the attack on the Capitol building. Uh, unfortunately, this did not last. Um, Derek, could you go to my last slide? And three years later, or five years later, excuse me, in 18... Um, uh, 68, I can do math. Um, this is what Thomas Nast illustrated, which is, I believe that it is someone at the top who is reading the Emancipation Proclamation. Underneath that top figure is a list of acts of violence against black Americans, and there is a woman and a child laying at the base of this monument. It turns out that during the same amount of time that the American government was pursuing reconciliation and restoration, uh, the failed Confederate apostles were preaching a different story, an alternative version of events in which they claimed that they had not actually been fighting for slavery. Ha ha, guys, it's in your constitution. Uh, we can read it there ourselves. But actually, they were fighting for exactly the same thing the Union was, which was civil liberties. Now, early on, very early on, uh, American soldiers on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line had been organizing memorial events and uh, even reunions, and in very early photographs, you see that there are white and black soldiers there together at these events. By the time the 50th anniversary happened in, um, uh, well, I'm not gonna do the math now, 50 years later, I think it's 1913, uh, the anniversary of Gettysburg, actually, if you look at the photographs, it is exclusively white. The only people of color that were there were cleaning up after the party. Something had changed. This alternate set of facts had been very effective, and quite frankly, the United States government got tired. They ran out of resilience of protecting the true victims of 
um, the American system, and instead they had pursued this alternate vision that had been promoted by the Confederacy and accepted by many Union veterans, which was, yeah, that everybody was fighting honorably, all American dead are sort of equally honorable, and uh, if we don't heal, then we're never going to get past this. And Frederick Douglass very notably asked in 1875, if war among the whites brought peace and liberty to blacks, what will peace among the whites bring? In 1877, there was a contested election, and uh, Republicans and Democrats came to, a, to an agreement that Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican uh, nominee, would be inaugurated into the presidency, and in return, northern troops would be removed from southern cities. And at that point, southern states were able to completely reverse every bit of progress that had been made, and it devolved almost to ground zero. And we had 100 years of Jim Crow, which made voting nearly impossible, access to public services nearly impossible, and all of this was enforced with a reign of violence that killed thousands of Americans. All because the reconciliation process, the restoration process that had been started in earnest the people that had the power to do it gave up. They gave up. They didn't have resilience. And they didn't finish the work. And so here we are today. We're still in incompleted work on many things. But on this day, I want to draw our attention to this work that is incomplete. And I want to say that as Christians, we're called, as Paul says, to this ministry of reconciliation that can take many forms. And this is hard work. I think I preached last time, I said that I believe that as, as Christians, there's sort of there's a range of policy stances that you can take on, on issues. But the stance that we're not allowed to take is to do nothing. And there are a lot of commentators, both um, Christian and secular, who have made a lot of money by shooting down every possible suggestion of a way to move forward in reconciliation on these issues. Somehow there's no suggestion that's up to snuff. Every protest violates some code of propriety or respectability. Somehow every claim of harm can be undermined by questioning the character of the person bringing the claim. It's easy to stay at safety, or at least it's easy for us. But that is the one position that we are not allowed to take as believers. That is a position that is not open to those of us who claim that we have been saved by the blood and body of Jesus. If that work is real, if we have moved from being enemies of God to, I love this, the Catholics use this, this phrase much more often than we do, to become friends of God, and as Paul says, co-workers, we need to pursue reconciliation. We need to mirror him and meet him in the place where he has done all of the work to meet us. And one way that we've been practicing and catechizing ourselves into this reality is that every week we take communion together. And so I'm going to hand you back over to our pastor, Meg, to do that.